Hey, welcome to a lecture in the course Psychology 3717. It's a course I teach here at Algoma University in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and that's for the winter term of 2023. Um, I'm Dave Broadback, the instructor. Uh, if you get something out of it, great, especially if you're one of my students. If you don't, if you're one of my students, you should maybe listen more, ask some questions, come to office hours. If you're not one of my students, not really my concern. Um, but if you don't understand it, that's probably on you because as if you're, you know, unless you're one of my students. But it's on you because I'm really good at this. Seriously. But anyway, hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Right, we're finally going to talk about something cool. Um, at least to me, this is cool. This is, this is what I do. So I study comparative cognition. I study memory, usually in non-humans. I've, I've studied memory in people. I just don't. I, I find people uh, boring and annoying. Non-humans show up for the experiments. There's no. Oh, they didn't show up. Well, if they don't show up, that means they're already dead. Maybe that's a little dark, I'm sorry. Um, comparative psychology was as old as psychology. As a sort of, when we classically think of when psychology started in 1879, we tend to, you know, we think about going to people like that. But it's also the case that early on, people were talking about comparative psychology, comparative psychology, just comparing different species, right? Um, people have wondered what animal is smartest. In years, longer than there's been psychology. People have been wondering the answer to that uh, question. A lot of studies have looked at things like serial position effects, long-term and short-term memory, in rats and pigeons. Right? There's an implicit question here. And that question is, can rats do what humans do? Or pigeons, or whatever animal species you want to talk about. So that's what you're asking, really. On the surface, this seems like an interesting question, but almost a reasonable one. Uh, I think you could probably note that I'm going to tell you it's not a reasonable question, or a good one. What's the basis for this question? Right? What's the basis for asking, can rats do what people do? Um, well, obviously, everything is striving to be human. At the top of some evolutionary ladder must be people, or just below angels. And after that is God. God is people. Out of chimps, and it goes down all the way up. Of course, that's not evolution. You know how it works. It's a tree. You all know that. And in fact, Campbell and Hono's talking about that in 1969. Um, in a paper called, Where is the Compar Comparison and Comparative Psychology? As stupid as this idea sounds, people, the implicit thing is when I ask if a rat can do what a person can do, I'm asking why, what I'm asking is why can't rats do what people do, right? Um, so this is stupid. <laughs> it's actually just stupid. <laughs> There's no other word for it. It's a stupid idea. Because there is no top or goal to evolution that just is, right? So. Evolution, it's like saying, it's like thinking that gravity has a goal. It's, it's a property of the universe, it doesn't have a goal. It's like saying, why aren't ones more like twos? Like, it's just, it's just stupid. But it sounds, on the surface though, it sounds reasonable, doesn't it? The much better question is, what has driven some species to solve a certain type of problem? And of course, they're gonna, when, I, when I'm talking about solving a problem here, I'm talking about it cognitive problem, using memory, right? So if we're going to put this in the terms of evolutionary biology, we'd say what selective pressures have led to the evolution of certain cognitive mechanisms. Okay, questions so far? Make sense? Mm-hmm. Good. So asking what species is smartest then it's a very, 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 fairly silly question. It's, it's like asking why can't people fly when they flap their arms? What kind of question is that? 
But it's really what you're asking. It really is what you're, why can't people run as fast as she is? Because we can invent cars. Like, you know how we fly, we invent airplanes. And then we pay too much to sit on a plane full of people with COVID. Um, so we have to compare species to see, look at species differences, but we can't be going, why can't rats do what people do? So how do we do such comparisons? So let's say we compare a couple species on some tasks. And again, these tasks are going to be just memory tasks, so I'll talk about a bunch of them today. Um, how do we know if some difference we find is due to cognitive differences and not due to, say, motivational differences? Like, I don't know. Um, you can get one species to maybe work for, so do, do a task for, I don't know, let's pick a reinforcer. Rats love chocolate. You can get rats to do all kinds of things for chocolate. But there may be other species that don't like chocolate, so they're not going to perform as well for a chocolate reward, even though they can solve the task. It's just that the thing they're going to get at the end doesn't do anything. You know, it's, it's like when they say to me, why don't you go down to the Ontario University Fair? And I say, sure, I'll do it, $500 a day. And they look at me and they say, well, no. I said, well, it's not my job, so I'm not doing that, thanks. <laughs> Ooh, a trip to Toronto, I'm so excited. I want to go to Toronto. It's fine. I want to hang around and see 100,000 people come by going, where's the St. Marie? So I go to the Ontario University Fair. So this guy Bitterman had these ideas that we could actually rank order species. He was one of these people actually that said you could rank order species. He said, you know, there's fish-like learning and bird-like learning. And then people called him on it. And he said, I didn't say that. And then everybody's like, well, you wrote this paper and it says it, dude. And he still denied it. Still denied it until I think he's dead. So then this guy McPhail comes along. And McPhail basically, this is you and McPhail, he's still around, the Scottish guy. Uh, you probably never guessed the name like Ewan McPhail would be Scottish. Um, McPhail basically says that in science we start with an all hypothesis. We all know that. That's good. And there no is there's no difference between two groups. That's good. So if nothing happened, there's no effect. But if something happens, maybe it's because of motivation. Maybe it's because one species likes one out of food and the other species doesn't. So maybe that's why they didn't do it. Oh, shit. Hmm. Got to keep that motivational thing in mind. Like I said, it could be a motivational difference. Now, this is something that should bother you. Because when you think about this for more than 30 seconds, to me it shouldn't bother you that. Give, it, give another five seconds for it to ruminate. Al Camel pointed out, there's Al, holding a Clark's Nutcracker. And he sees a flaw here, and I hope you can see it too. And that flaw is that you're setting an hypothesis you can't reject. If I say there's no difference between two species, that's fine. That's my no. And then I don't find anything, that's fine. I, I, I do not reject at all. However, if I find something, then it still is an evidence. This is kind of like when a conspiracy theorist says to you, well, that's exactly what I'd expect you to say. Whenever anybody says that to you, that's when you leave the room and probably never talk to that person again because they're an idiot. Hard-hitting facts like that are what you'll hear on Wednesday night at the Bush Plain Museum when there's free wine to come to my talk. There's other people talking too, but they won't be nearly as interesting as I am. My wife said to me, did you, did you make up, do you have examples about all this? It's called problem solving we figure things out what's true. She said, do you have examples? I said, sure. She said, are they like COVID? I said, probably. She said, what do you mean probably? I said, you really don't understand that I make this stuff up as I go along, right? A buddy of mine said, oh, I've seen a lecture. It's basically a free-form jazz. <laughs> so you've set up an hypothesis you can't reject. That's bad. So how do we fix it? One could ask Al Campbell, and Al Campbell would respond uh, like this, because uh, that's how he talks. 
kind of talks like Mayor Quimby, except if he was an experimental psychologist. Um, what we do is we'll test many species in many different paradigms. So we won't just say test them on one kind of task. We'll test them in a lot of different tasks, and we'll make some predictions. Okay. So if we find similar differences in a lot of different tests, it seems unlikely that motivation would always be the culprit. Like if you were comparing, and I'm going to go with food storing words because I know a lot about them. If you're comparing a food storing species and non-storing species, so let's go with uh, our food stores will be, uh, be black-capped chickadees and will be, what else, blue jays and scrub jays. And our non-storers will be, uh, well, let's see what looks going to be a non-store. Oh, be dark eyed chickens. Okay, so we're going to compare these, and let's say we're doing a maze task. We would expect our food stores to be better than our non-stores because our food stores depend on finding their food, eh? So we would expect, you know, I don't know, somewhere bordering like this. And then what's another, um, something I'll tell you about shortly. We're gonna, let's say we cast uh, spatial delayed matching to sample. I'll explain that in a second, but it's just another spatial task. And we might get one, two, three, four. And then let's say color. We, we, should, we shouldn't find that the, the Juncos say finish fourth. They may finish third, second, or first, or fourth. But if we do a whole bunch of things and we find ones that are spatial tasks where the food stores are better, we can make some pretty reasonable conclusions that the food stores have better spatial memory than non stores. That make sense? So it's just a way of sort of making sure error cancels. Right? It's just like how I don't have one test, I have a test and a second test and project and presentation. Because Maybe you're not great at tests, was another way to get marks. Maybe you're not great at presentations, another way to get marks. Maybe you had a bad day, there's still more ways to get marks. So when I say error there, it's just a little extra variation you can't explain. So I'm using the statistical sense. Um, we all have bad days, right? That's why your final, I don't just have one exam worth 100%. As much as I would be totally into that, because you know what that means? Less marking. Anything that involves less marking, I, I, am, I am totally behind. I envy my colleagues at bigger universities where there are graduate students, so you just give them a pile of things and say, mark this, I'll need it tomorrow. I used to be one of those guys, so, but I do envy them. So we'll do it like that. Motivation can't always be the culprit because error cancels, as I just said. And we're going to look at life history, biology, neuroscience, psychology. We're going to look at these problems from many different angles, not just the one angle of how do they do in this maze? Okay. So which differences should have evolved with this crazy idea? We're going to make predictions. So instead of saying, gee, I wonder if rats can do this, we're going to say, I bet chickens will be better than juncos at this task. So it's not demonstrations, it's actually results. Okay, does that make sense? That's sort of a little preamble before we get into some results. So here's, oh, here's a bunch of people and some birds. This is a black-capped chicken. You may have seen black-capped chickadees before. You can actually hear their songs now. Um, you know, that's the song that chickadee-dee-dee is their call. They're food stores. That's a Clark's Nutcracker in the middle. Clark, you know, chickadees are about that big. A Clark's Nutcracker is the size of a small pigeon. They're a good size. Um, this is Lord John Krebs. Sorry, Sir John Krebs, Lord of something. I don't know. I call him John. But he's, his dad won the Nobel Prize because he discovered the Krebs cycle. Yeah, that's his. I once said to John, I was drunk. I was like a graduate student. And I said, you know, if my dad was a Nobel Prize, I wouldn't have done what you I would have gone into car racing. Maybe NASCAR. And I had to explain to him NASCAR. 
But yeah, so it's John Krebs. He studied this stuff a lot from storing birds. That's Sarah Shuttleworth on South Park's Road in Oxford. Actually, that's my PhD advisor, who I will hopefully see in about six weeks of the conference. That's my friend Rob Hampton, who will be picking us up for the conference on his wedding, on his, sorry, his uh, honeymoon when he was in Africa. He found the skull of a warthog, which is just, if, if you knew Rob at all, that's just a completely Rob thing to happen. This is at Western. This is the Advanced Facility for Avian Research. And if you look closely, one of those people in that picture is my kid. My other kid, there's one of them right there. Because um, she studies this stuff too. So that's just some people, give you some notion on this. So this is, Camel called this the synthetic approach. And when he said synthetic approach, he means that it's, it combines a lot of different things. So it starts out with Anderson and Krebs having a, coming up with a mathematical model showing that food storing, just the behavior, not nothing to do with cognition, the food storing could only evolve if you recovered your own seeds. It can't evolve if you're recovering everyone else's seeds because I'll just sit back and not store any food. If you're all doing things communally like it's all nature's a great socialist paradise, let's all do that. And you know what? I'll win because I'm not doing extra behavior. I'm not wasting time. I'll probably kill your young and maybe mate with your mate. What the hell? While you're out storing food for all of us. So it has to, you have to recover your own seeds. So it can only evolve if you recover your own caches, right? So Dave Sherry, who's my daughter's PhD advisor, Sherry, Avery, and Stevens in 1981 did a pretty cool experiment where they, this was in Oxford, what they did is they took um, pine seeds and they coated them with, um, oh, what was it? I can't remember what, a radioactive element, nothing too dangerous, so it's not like it's an environmental problem or a problem for birds, but it's a way for them to detect where the seeds are. So they took these seeds once they found them and then they would just move them. A third of them they moved 10 centimeters. A third of them they moved 30 centimeters. And a third of them they kept in the same place. And the ones that were moved weren't recovered. The ones that weren't moved were recovered. So you come back a week later, the ones that weren't moved are gone. The ones that are moved 10 freaking centimeters, they're still there. So they're not doing it, you must be recovering your own seeds, and you're probably doing it through memory. So they're using their own seeds using memory. They're finding their own seeds using memory. Make sense so far? Yeah. Pretty cool experiment. So, Shuttleworth uh, and Krebs, those two of those people, had um, marsh tits. They're like black capped chickens, except they're British. They look like black capped chickens. Uh, their song is exactly the same. I wonder if they're the same species. I, I don't think they are. Like, they're very closely related. Um, the way you can tell it's a marsh tit, not a black cat chickadee, is they go chickadee dee dee. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so she had Sarah. When I say she, that's Sarah Shuttleworth. She had birds storing seeds in a lab, um, and then the birds would cache their seeds. And how they do this? The aviary they were in was about the size of uh, the front part here. Yeah, that's what that says. And she had four four by fours, okay, with holes drilled in them. And the birds flew up to the, the holes and they put the seeds in. That's all it is, pretty simple. And they would recover those seeds later so they'd come back in, I think it was a day later, uh, into the aviary. Now half the seeds they removed. Uh, half, yeah, half the seeds they removed and also half, then they also put some other random seeds around. The birds never found, well, very rarely did they get the random ones, and they did go back to where they had stored seeds even though they had been moved, which should tell you something. It tells you that they're not doing it by smell or anything like that. They're doing it with memory. All right, yeah, half the seeds removed. They're using that. So in general, other general memory tests have been clear differences between food stores and non-stores. But only in corvids. Corvids are crows, jays, you know, so the, 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 I talked about a blue jay and a scrub jay. Those are a couple of corvids. Uh, black crows. Crows are just our corvids. You got to remember, these food-storing birds, they don't migrate. Their solution to not very much food around in the winter is when I find food, I hide it. So when I get up in the morning, I have something to eat. 
Because a little songbird like a chickadee, if it doesn't eat about 30 seconds after, sorry, 30 minutes after it wakes up in the morning, it starves to death. A chickadee weighs 11 grams. That's what an adult chickadee weighs, 11 grams. Not much. So one sunflower seed, for example, will tie them over until you can go find more food. So knowing where you put your seeds, your life depends on it. So you get pretty good at it. But this was in the corvids a whole lot more than the uh, chickadees and tits. So that's, those are called parrots. And I've told you about hippocampal differences before, right? Because if you've ever met me, about 10 minutes in, I've told you about hippocampal differences between storing and non-storing birds. Hippocampus is bigger in a food-storing bird than a non-storing bird. We know that hippocampus is important in spatial memory, London cab drivers. But it's also important in spatial memory in black-capped chickens. So, but what about these parrots? That's the, that's the chickadees, the marsh tits, things like that. The, the, the people were looking for this, the, the differences between, and the beautiful thing about the, the, the parrot is there are non-storing parrots. Like, there's the black cat chickadees stores food, marsh tit stores food, great tit doesn't store food. Blue tit stores food, and cold tit doesn't, or is that right? Siberia tit stores food, willow tit stores food, but some of them don't, so it's like, we should be able to find something in the same family, and people didn't. And it's like, it should work this way, what the hell's going on? should work that way, but it wasn't. So maybe let's not work, look at how much they remember. Let's look at how they remember. So what I'm talking about here are qualitative versus quantitative differences. Quantitative meaning there's more of something. Qualitative is a different way to do it. At some point, a qualitative difference becomes, sorry, a quantitative difference becomes qualitative. Snakes have little bumps where their legs should be, that they've they disappeared a long time ago. Would you say that there's a qualitative a quantitative difference between snakes and us or qualitative? I think it's qualitative. They look about in a different way. But generally, let's look at differences in how these food storing birds remember things, not how much they remember things. So there's a picture of me a long time ago. I am 27. Just finished my PhD. My advisor, who's the same age as my, well, a little older than my mom, and she, I, she used to hate when I pointed that to her. I, well, I said it once, and I got a very disapproving look, so I never said it again. You're as old as my mom. I went, I'm such an idiot. I have no idea how to interact with anybody. It's amazing that I get through the day without constantly being punched in the face. But that's actually a party just before I moved away, before I started my postdoc. So, what I did is I compared, what my whole career's been about is comparing non-storing and storing birds, and, and what did they remember on different tasks, not how much So there's a couple examples. Those are, is that all of it? Yeah, those are the two middle chapters of my PhD thesis that became articles. Okay, so I'm gonna explain one of them to you. That's this one here. So what happens in this experiment is the, in a room about a third the size of this, black-capped chickadees or dark-eyed chuckles were led into the room and there were feeders hanging on the wall. Four feeders. And the feeders were always different and in different locations. And one of the feeders was baited, had a piece of peanut, and the other feeders didn't. The bird's task is to fly in, he eats the peanut, or she, for 30 seconds, and then I turn the lights out. When you turn the lights out, and you turn the lights on in a little cage that the bird lives in, it's got a trap door, and it flies right back in. It's great, usually. Sometimes you have to go in and chase it with a butterfly net. Which is all the things, you think, nowhere you'd be a scientist was this in the brochure, up there with cleaning out bird shit. No one said I have to do that. <laughs> They're good at this, they get very good very quickly. So they fly back in after a five minute retention interval. I've covered all, you can see these feeders here have sort of uh, little circles. Those little circles had 
little bell, there are little Velcro circles, and I would put little Velcro tabs on them so the bird couldn't see where the food was. So he'd have to fly, land on a little perch, and remove it with his beak, which is the coolest thing to watch. And they learn it very quickly because they're hungry and they want to eat. <laughs> um, I think very good at this very quickly. So this is how the chickadees do here. And you can see that this, so, oh, sorry, I should go back. So normally, there's the studying part. Then the test part, normally it's all the same, except that on test days, I've moved the whole array of feeders. See, I've moved the whole array of feeders over. I've also switched a couple. So we now have three separate feeders, one that's in the correct global spatial position in the room, one that is in the correct spatial position with respect to all the other feeders, and one that's the right color, and then one that's just wrong. It shares no characteristics. And you can see their first choice is to space, their second choice is to the position in the, in the array of feeders, and their third choice is to the color. And very often they wouldn't even make a fourth choice. What they would do is they would, stay, they would fly to a perch that I had in the middle of the aviary and look at the, the window. You sort of stare at it. It's like, no, we get it, Dave. I know there's no feet. I'm not even going to that. Just five minutes. Do you see the task? Does it make sense? So what I can do is I can see what their preferences are. And you can see their preferences are the array position first, sorry, the spatial position first, then the array position, then the color. Right. So I would move this, they get moved around to dissociate the spatial position and the color. Now it's not advancing at all. Well, that's grand. Just a second. <laughs> oh, yeah, there it moved a whole bunch of times. Good. So the chickies responded last to color, whereas dark-eyed juncos, I don't have their graph up, dark-eyed juncos responded to space array and color equally. And they did remember that, they remembered them because that, that final feeder, they were the same. They'd look at me. They wouldn't go, but they, they choose color first, sometimes space first. Group. So that's the difference in the pattern of how they responded. So we did, we've done, and it's not just me, I mean, tons of people have done these compar comparisons. Um, I've got this down to a, a computer touch screen, so the size of, this was a 17 inch monitor, and the birds were pecking at it. So I did it, I completely divorced it from a food sorting kind of thing. They were just pecking in different colored patches. And that still worked. And I still found the same set of difference. So they were rewarded for going to one place or another, different colored patches. So I might have a green patch, and then the bird gets it, and then maybe a red patch over here. But the red patch over here, a little bit to the green patch, had a black dot on it. The bird's task is to peck at that black dot a few times, it's five times, and then it would disappear. And then the bird, they would come back on, and the bird would have to pick the right one, but you can see what I can do. Sometimes I can switch the positions. So it goes down to also, from every a third the size of this room, down to something, you know, that So the chickadees relied on the space, the juncos didn't. In fact, the weird thing um, is that it was hard to even get the chickadees to pay attention to color. So what I did is I kept moving it around and making it that it's explicitly just the color. The chickadees could learn this. I was able to train one. It took 600 trials before that bird was better to chance. They can do it, but it's like, no, I don't pay attention to that, man. I worry where stuff is, because if I don't know where stuff is, I die. Junkos could learn it right away. It's like, oh, good color, I got it. So functionally, this makes a lot of sense because um, birds remember where something is, not what color it is. They remember it, but it's not important for you know, their life. Colors change out in nature. That line of trees over there is still gonna be there tomorrow though. But the colors might have changed, so ignore the color. Pay attention to the global spatial position. The strange result here is actually the, the juncos. <laughs> Turns out, um, this is some of my RCs years ago. 
what pigeons? Uh, we found pigeons actually behave the, behave the same way as chickens, uh, chickadees. So it's kind of weird in that in this task, the juncos behave this way. The thing is, it's been replicated by not just me, by other people. So it's a pretty robust result. No one's still quite sure as to why it, in this very specific task, this happens. Probably shares a lot of, with food storage. Okay, so let me give you, any questions on that before I talk about the next thing? What do you want to know, John? So a um, car would uh, move functionally like a bird. No, no, it's not that. It's the functionally means, functionally meaning evolutionarily. So what does it accomplish? So what, remembering where something is, what that accomplishes is getting the food because spatial locations don't change over time. But colors and things do. So that's what it means. Other questions? Okay. So here's an example of an experiment that I ran years ago with uh, Jessica Hubbard. Long time ago back when I was in Memorial. So that's her there. She won an award, an NSERC, summer NSERC, and we were studying. Um, so we got the paper. So it happens to live in a small town, so the student gets a scholarship and ends up with the paper. Uh, and what we studied were pine siskins. So pine siskins, that's these little guys here. Um, they breed in North America, and they do the odd migratory invasion. They go pretty far south now and then, but they don't do it all the time. And they were pretty common on the West Coast of Newfoundland where Jessica lived, and where I lived at the time. So she did this experiment in her backyard. So what happened was, you can sort of see the setup here. And it's not great, but yeah, you can see there's different colored feeders. Okay. So there's a green one, a red one, and a yellow one. And they were a few meters apart. And the, the seeds in here, there was actually three cups of sunflower seeds, two cups and one cup. A three to two to one ratio. And you can see what happened here is they learned very quickly to go to the third one first, or sorry, the one with the most first, and then the second most, and then the third most. Okay? Yeah? Okay, good. So, they can learn this. They, def they distributed their visits in a three to two to one ratio. Maybe they actually saw how much food was in the thing, though, because there was a glass thing. These are just bird feeders we bought at Canadian Tire. It's no problem, right? So maybe they just emptied the rightmost feeder first because it had less food in it. Well, the way you test this, the way you test this is you cover it up. Now the birds can't see it. You cover them up with some paper or something, and you start flip, flipping them around. So you see this is all covered up. The bird actually can't see which food's in there. And so instead of going green, red, yellow, we would now have red, green, yellow, or whatever. By doing this, we could then look, oh, and we also did it with any food in them. So there's actually no food in them. And this is what we found. So you can see when it's green, red, yellow, that's sort of a control the top left. You can see it's actually about space. That should be green. That doesn't look very good. Yeah, that's the green. Sorry, that's the green. That's the green, yeah, okay. So you can see as long as the, one, of, one of the extremes was in one of, was in the extreme, like sorry, one of the lowest or the highest is one of the extreme positions, left or right. They still went bang, bang, bang. As soon as you messed up those sort of anchor points, things changed. I, I don't know. It's kind of cool, I got a paper out of it. <laughs> but I'm not entirely sure what. So what does that mean? Um, the siskins are responding to space, sort of. They should be very, very uh, sensitive to the amount of food in a feeder because they seem to leave the northern part of, uh, sort of central, I guess, but let's call it northern part of North America. They leave it and go south, but not every year. They seem to do it based on is there a lot of, a lot of problem with the food supply. So they should be very sensitive. Okay, questions so far? You got another one, Joe, what is it? Oh yeah, um, 
so what does this space feeder mean if the most profitable feeder is not the exact opposite? Exactly. Okay, that's a good question. So if the feeders, the feeders are set up like, let's come back. So the feeders are set up that the most profitable one is on the left, and profitable means it has the most food. When those were moved from the extreme, so either the green's not at at the far left or the red's not at the far right, so that's these two, things fall apart. I don't know why. I don't know why. All right, and this was from an official talk, so sometimes I like to use it. Put out the pictures, and that's uh, two of my old students. Taught that's two guys that work with me, worked with me. Craig on the left, and the guy on the right, Eric, is a prof now. And, uh, he's sitting right there. And that was our house. Yeah. <laughs> Celebrity. All right. So let's talk generally about animal memory. That's just some specific results. We have two kinds of memory generally we talk about when we talk about memory in non-humans. We talk about working memory, which is kind of like working memory in humans, but there's no phonological loop, obviously, because you don't see a lot of word, you know, reading in birds. Um, but they have a working memory, which is the memory they needed for one trial of a task. And they have reference memory, which are all the rules of the game. And I, this may be a little complicated, but I can explain this with some examples, and I think they'll help. Uh, this distinction comes from uh, Bern Honig, I think. Did I skip a slide? No, I did not. OK, good. So a classic way to do this is called, is one of the classic sort of preparations for this is called delayed matching to sample. In a delayed matching to sample task, a pigeon, usually we're talking about birds here, so let's do some pigeons, is shown a green dot on a computer touch screen. It used to be, and we still call them keys. Everybody calls them keys. They used to be these little, what they were called key lights. They were little lights about this big in an operating chamber. We don't use those anymore because we have computer touch screens we use now. So. But the bird's presented with a little dot. That's called the sample. Okay. And it pecks this for a number of times, let's say 20 times. And then that goes out, and there's a retention interval. And then it gets a choice between the red and the green. So you can have delayed matching to sample, that means if you've seen the green one, you've got to pick the green one. You get a delayed non-matching sample. So if you saw the sample was green, you pick the red one. Now, obviously, half the time the sample's red, half the time the sample's green. Half the time green's on the left, half the time green's on the right. If anybody is really into methodological control, it's people who study animals who can't talk. You have to be really careful because you know, the birds can't look at you and go, I, I was just going to the left one. You can actually figure that out pretty easily. Okay. The cool thing is, with either delayed matching the sample or delayed non-matching the sample, you can look at this from sort of from a comparative standpoint as well. Macintosh Wilson and Books, uh, 1982, yeah, 82. I know that. Um, They trained up pigeons and jackdaws. Obviously, they they chose those birds because they would eventually be used as the name of uh, a ship in Assassin's Creed 4. Probably not. Anyway, they trained them up on, it was yellow and blue. The reference memory part of this, there's two ways you can solve this problem. What's, what's one way you can solve this problem? What's a rule you can use to solve this problem? Well, I can do it with two rules. If red, peck red. If green, peck green. Let's say it's green. Okay? What's another one that's maybe a little more efficient? That? 
No, it's always just circles. Different colors. So if, if red, peck red, if green, peck green, the other way would be to actually do match two samples. So this should tell you something. If we start with red and green, we switch them over to blue and yellow. If you're doing if red, peck red, if green, peck green, as your reference memory rules, you will be screwed when it's blue and yellow. You'll be like, I, what do I do? However, if, you've, if the rule you have learned is match to sample, you'll go, okay, blue and yellow, whatever. Right? You wouldn't know that the animals were solving it with one rule, if red, uh, which is match to sample, or two rules, if red, peck red, if green, peck green, unless you <coughs> change the stimuli. So that's what happened. And they found that pigeons were screwed. They would drop right down to 50%. They'd be guessing. Jackdaws, we're like, no problem. Are jackdaws smarter than pigeons? No. They both solved the task just fine. Thank you. They solved it in a different way. Doesn't make them smarter. Okay. So the reference memory part is if red, pet, red, if green, pet, green, or match to sample. The working memory part is what? Because it's to solve a single trial. What would the working memory be? There's two ways you can solve this using working memory. <coughs> it's only one trial. So you've seen a green key light, you've pecked it 20 times, it's gone out, and now you have a retention interval. You have to remember what you have to do for that one trial. What's, what's a possible way you could solve this? What's a possible way you could solve this? You can remember what color it was. This is way easier than you're making it. You could remember sample was green or sample was red. Or you could do it, that's called retrospectively, looking back, what color was the sample. Or you could say, peck the green one, peck the green one, peck the green one, or peck the red one. You can do either of those. So you can use prospective, retrospective encoding. So the working memory part is for one trial, the reference memory part is the whole experiment. Both of these things are subject to retroactive and proactive interference. Just like it would be in people. Now, if I did this with you, you would never make a mistake. Or very rarely would you make a mistake. In fact, it would be so rare that we would just say it would be perfect. Like it would be a slip of the fingers. But I can make it harder. Sure. So all I had to do is make it, I don't know, make, make the signal a little less discriminable. It's easy to do. I could just make it two different shades of green that were very close together. I mean, th there's ways to make this complicated for people. Right? Wouldn't be, it's, it's totally doable. But it's the same task. Okay, here's a cool experiment, because I just said there's a couple ways you could do this. If you're the pigeon, you could be looking forward prospectively. I'm going to peck the green one when it shows up. Or I could be going, it was green, it was green, it was green. Just rehearsing. How are we going to get that? What we're going to do is we're going to call Herb Reutblatt, and we're going to call him when he was in graduate school in the Navy. Because if we call him now, he lives, he works at the University of Hawaii, and he works with dolphins, and he just, he lives in Hawaii, and everybody hates him. I mean, not really, but we all have a conference in Florida. The whole animal cognition community comes together. Every year in Florida, I'll be going to Florida in the second week of April. I don't want to go to Florida. And everybody's like, oh, it's so hot and great. And he's like, well, I live in Hawaii. And it's always the same response. Well, fuck you. I don't. It was snowing when I left home. Well, really, we don't really have weather in Hawaii. It's just blue and 27 all the time. Shut up! Anyway, so we don't usually know. This is an incredibly, this is called symbolic matching to sample, which is clever as hell. So. The bird is given, these are pigeons, given a, a red sample, and if the sample was red, the rule the bird learns is peck the horizontal line. That's why it's called symbolic magic. 
If the sample was orange, heck, the vertical line is up and down. If the sample is blue, heck, the almost vertical line, so it's on like an angle of five or ten degrees. Okay? So if they make mistakes when the choices are one and two, so they're given a red sample, and then they're given a horizontal or a vertical line. They must be recoding retrospectively, encoding retrospectively, because it's easy to confuse red and orange for work And I got this, uh, I made a little diagram of this in a second, let's see it, make it a little clearer. If they do this when the choices are two and three, they're encoding prospectively because two and three, vertical line and almost vertical line, are easy to confuse. But blue and orange, you can't confuse those. So, what happens is, again, the bird would be given one sample, not three, so it'd be given, like, let's say, the orange sample, and then it gets a choice between, let's say, a vertical line and an almost vertical line. If the bird was encoding retrospectively, this should be trivially easy. Because what it's doing is it's looking into its own memory and thinking, yes, I said it, birds think, and thinking, was it orange or was it blue? It's not going to confuse us, Prospectively, though, it would be like, okay, it's a vertical line. And then it gets almost vertical and vertical. Oh, those are really, those are almost the same. Questions on this? You probably want to know what happened, but before that, do you understand the interpretation and the procedure? Uh, the side at which it angles wouldn't matter, correct? Shouldn't matter. I don't even remember if it's off to the right there or off to the right there. Oh, I'm trying. The years started, that, put it this way, the years started with a one the last time I this paper. And don't feel bad if you don't get it, just ask, because this is not, this is a really nuanced and super clever experiment. So what is meant by retrospective? Looking back. Okay. Yep, retrospective looking back, prospective looking forward. Because if we was looking back and thinking it was red, and then it gets the choice between vertical and horizontal, and it makes a mistake, the mistake is that it was looking back to orange, and they're easy to confuse. But if they're looking forward, those are those are completely they're opposite, right? Same thing with I mean orange and blue are basically. The only way you could have done it better would be yellow and blue because they're literally opposite in cones, right? In even a bird. So you could have done it that way. But yeah, so looking forward, you're going to confuse the two on the right. Looking backwards, you're going to confuse the two on the left. Okay. Make sense? Yeah. Good. And like I said, don't feel bad if you don't get it. I, I was in, when I read this first, I was in graduate school, and I literally had no idea what I just read. I just read it and went, I. I hope everybody else got it when we're sitting in the discussion in the seminar of four people. That's pressure, by the way, when you're in grad school and there's three people in your class and the professor's your PhD advisor. That's a little bit of pressure. And then sometimes you and that guy that had the warthog skull, instead of reading the three articles you're supposed to read, you drink an entire case of beer. And then the next day, you both sit there and say, we didn't read it. As, well, as Rob said, started saying, anybody have any problems with these articles? Rob's like, there's not a lot of subjects. Like just random bullshit, you would say to crit critique an article. And I looked at Sarah Shuttleworth and said, we didn't read it. And he looked at me and he said, what? And I said, she's going to figure it out, Rob. And then she said, class is over. And she didn't speak to me for two weeks. Um, it's very, you know, I was supposed to do the reading. And instead, I got drunk, because I'm an idiot. Questions on this? Does this make sense? Yes? Um, 
so retrospective is the left two because you're looking back at what it was. That's correct. Perspective is the right two because you're looking forward. Exactly. So this is retrospective, and these are prospective. Whenever this is looking forward, this, these here are looking backwards. So the animal is looking at its representation. You got a question, John? Oh yeah. Um, what is the outline um, in a straight horizontal line? What about it? Oh, it's the, when, 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 when the sample was read, so when the bird got a red thing to peck at, to, to, to have the correct answer, it was a horizontal line. It's completely arbitrary. So it's not like something that makes any sense. Yeah. It's completely made up by the expert, by her blood by, by Certainly. Okay, makes sense? Yeah. Yes, makes sense. Good. Other questions? Is that good? We're good. So what happens is that they encode retrospectively and then switch to prospective the longer the retention intervals. Which is, I see nodding your head, it's like, yeah, that's what I do. That's exactly what I do. Because it seems to me, if I'm going to look back, I guess in my head, I think that's going to be more accurate somehow. I don't know. Maybe that's a pigeon's thing. I don't know. So what happens is the longer the retention interval, the more likely they are to switch to prospective encoding. So instead of saying, it was orange, it was orange, it was orange, it was orange, it's Vertical line, vertical line, vertical line, vertical line. After a certain amount of time, each bird was a little bit different. But they did all switch. Incredibly cool experiment. Like, that's, it's super cool. And whenever I see her bird I tell them, you know, that's still one of the coolest things I've ever read. There's a downside to saying that, saying to somebody, you know, you think you did in graduate school and now it's 40 years later? It's the best thing you've ever done. If you, if you know the person, you can have a lot of fun with them. The eight-arm radial maze is a classic. This is a very simple maze that has a central platform. These are for, it was developed by Oakland Samuels in 1976 for rats. There's a central platform with eight arms that radiate out from the middle like the spokes of a wheel. The rats task, and at the end of each arm, which is about 30 centimeters long, at the end of each arm there's a piece of food. The rat's task is to run down to the end of the arm, get the food, and eat it. What would you do? I know what I'd do. Start at the top and go all the way around. It's how rats do. They do it in a semi-random fashion, yet they don't make mistakes after four or five times on the maze. So what you can do is you can actually bait forearms and leave forearms with no food. Now they can make two kinds of mistakes. They can make a reference memory mistake, which is going to one of the arms that's never made. And they can make a working memory mistake, which is going down an arm I've already been down in this trial. When you lesion hippocampus, they make mistakes. They only make working memory mistakes. They don't make reference memory mistakes. Pretty cool. That's such an important paper in animal cognition that I know the whole reference. And I mean, I know the whole reference, including page numbers and volume number of the journal and everything. And that's simply because it's such an important article. So how many times have been cited that it's not a small number? It's thousands. McKinnon and Roberts in 1997 found that the rats actually chunk. So what they did is they had a 12-arm radial maze because, because Bill Roberts likes mazes with different rats' arms. I don't know. I did my postdoc with Bill Roberts. Um, and I kind of wonder if you can go back. <laughs> Damn doors are locked. And of course, my keys don't open those doors, because why would the professor's keys open the door to a classroom? They wouldn't want you breaking in here and learning anything. Um, I, should, you know, I shouldn't joke too much, because about 15 years ago, some, a, a, a colleague of mine saw two people removing a projector and thought they were just servicing it. It was broad daylight. They just stole it. I got a little bit of admiration for that. Not the, for the balls of it. I don't mean the actual crime. I don't admire crime as a rule. I'm, I'm going to come out of it as a controversial position. I'm going to take crime back. So maybe I shouldn't jump too much. But you're going to steal it here. One of these freaking chairs I always throw around. I don't know. Maybe they'll steal that freaking podium piece of shit. <laughs> anyway, so how did they do this? 12 arm radial edge. Three of the arms had chocolate chips. Three of the arms had pieces of cheese. Three of the arms had Purina rat chow. And you're laughing to yourself. There's no such thing as Purina rat chow. And what do you think? They feed rats, Purina rat chow. So 
and then three of the arms are empty. The rats learn very quickly, they learn this very quickly, what they do is they go down the chocolate arms, then the cheese arms, then the rat chow arms, and then they sit there in the middle of the thing going, come on, I know there's nothing down here. How do you check? How do you reach out? Oh, pretty easy. Though. You can switch the I don't know. Let's switch the cheese arms and the uh, empty arms. So when they go down an empty arm or a cheese arm, they think it's sorry. They go down what they think is a cheese arm and it's empty. They switch over and go down to the empty arm that should have cheese. Like they actually know. Oh, those were the cheese arms. Oh, today they're these kind of arms. They put three different arms of the thing together in one chunk. It's pretty amazing. And in fact, we know they're chunking as well because it improves performance. If you randomly move where the food was each day, they don't do nearly as well. They do it, they're fine. But they do best when you keep the food types common within each arm. Peter Choli has done directed forgetting experiments. Directed forgetting is very simple. All we do is I, we can do this with people. All I do is you bring in the lab and I give you a list of words, but now and then I say, forget. And you actually don't, it's amazing how well that works. All I do is say remember for some of them and forget for others, and you, do, you do, don't do as well in the forgetting ones because you stop rehearsing. You deal with pigeons too, and instead you don't say remember or forget, that doesn't help at all. Doesn't help at all, you cannot reason with a pigeon. But, you, they learn very quickly that, um, so it goes green and then there's a triangle and then red and blue and then green and red. And they learn the triangle means forget and the square means remember. And then how do you test them? Well now and then you, you, you go, I lied. See, would you remember? And they don't do that well. Again, showing commonality between species, not difference, it's very cool. My, one of my favorite experiments was done again by my PhD advisor, Sarah Shuttleworth, and her postdoc at the time, Alistair Inman. This is a meta-memory experiment. Meta-memory is memory you know you have. And I've touched on this a little bit when I talked about you know, metacognition, knowing what you know. Like, how many people here have taken calculus? Just out of curiosity. Good. So you know how to take a derivative. Well, I, might, here. I might have been able to. Yeah. 2x squared plus 3. You can do that, right? Because it's 4x. That's easy. Other people don't know how to get 4x. You know you can't do it. You know you can do it. How do we? How do we? How do we? How do we do visions? Well, our old friend Magic the Sample shows up. Red key. Choice between green and red. Okay, fine. Once they've learned that, which takes you know a couple of days, but the day lasts. An hour, like you put them in the box, they, they run an experiment. Then you introduce something where they go, where you have red and green. Let me draw this one up. So let's say we had a green sample, and they're gonna get it. And if they're given they're given two choices: a triangle or a or a circle. If they get the triangle, they get food. They get five pieces of food, okay? If they get the green, if they pick this, they get a choice between green and red. And here, they're getting 15 if they get it right. They have nothing if they get it wrong. So if they pick the green, if they pick the, so this is gonna, this, obviously I've made this into non-magic, whatever. So if they pick this, they get zero. But here they get 15. The safe option is to take the, 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 the triangle, but you know what? What if you actually know the answer? It's very clever. What happens is the pigeons learn this. They're good at it. But how do we test it? Well, what we do is sometimes when, when they're given the safe key here, the, 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 we, we test them anyway. That's what Sarah and Alistair test them anyway. And guess what? They're at 50% correct here. 50%, which is guessing. They don't know the answer, but they know they don't know the answer, so they pick the triangle. That's really clever. 
Like, isn't that super clever? Anybody have any questions about that? Does that make sense? It's not super, it's, 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 it's simpler than you think. Good. So it's not a question, just like, so like they do make guesses. Yeah, they make guesses, yeah. Well, when you're given a choice, if, when they have chosen the safe key, the triangle, and then they get the choice between green and, they're, they're told that uh, I was lying, here, here it is. What are they gonna do? They pick something, so they guess. Yeah. Just like you would do if it's, I don't know, it goes, I didn't see, did you have your hand put up about how to do calculus? Do you know how to do calculus? Okay, so if I just said, you know, what's the first derivative of that? You know you don't know how to do that. Yeah, so you can guess, and if I gave you two options, and one of them was, I don't know, 3x plus seven, and the other one, was 6x squared plus 2x, which is the right answer. I think I did that, sorry, 4x. Uh, you're gonna get that one right half the time, by guessing, right? That's what, the, that's what the pigeons do. Other questions? Are you actually It's like you ever um, take a small ball, like a Nerf ball, with a dog, and you do that, and you drop the ball behind you, and as you throw it, the dog runs around looking for it, because dogs just want to please you. They're like, ah, rubbing all over the place. They come back, like, you show it to them, and they look at you like, you're a dick. I ran all over the house. I told you that, uh, that like I, one of the things I've uh, talked about before is the, is the priming stuff that pigeons show implicit priming implicit memory, but that implicit memory is pictured, right? It's, it's not word priming. And there's all kinds of other stuff. I just pick stuff out of my head and stuff out of my head comes out of my head. Often it's stuff I know already and stuff I know tends to be people I know, including myself. Though the inmate shuttle with paper's awesome and that, you know, some of these other things are cool. Okay, so non-humans' memory can be studied using clever experiments. I think I demonstrated that. And if it weren't true, I wouldn't be standing here anyway. So, uh, but yeah, non-human memory can be studied using clever experiments. Same way that we do that with babies, right? We're dealing with a non-verbal animal. And you want to look at what's evolved, you want to look at what kind of problems the animal had to solve in nature. Not, are they the same as us? A lot of this stuff's gonna be the same. You know, decay functions, like forgetting a curse, will look exactly the same in a pigeon as a, as a human, except the time course is different, but the shape of the curves. Finally, asking why can't rats do what people do is a stupid question. Like, it's not just, like, it's stupid. It's like asking why can't people fly? What kind of stupid question is that? Why can't I outrun a cheetah? Because it's a cheetah. The question's that, right? So, looking at what the animal should be able to do in the wild, and then taking into the lab and going from there is actually a much more sensible approach. Um, and it's funny, when I started grad school in 1988, that was weird and radical, and now it's what people do. But it was fun being one of the people who everybody thought was one of the weird radical people. Um, but studying, like everybody else is, I studied pigeons, and then you're like, so I looked at memory and black cat chickadees, and they go, ooh. Uh, questions on this stuff? No. Okay, so you will have a test, remember, coming up on Wednesday. Be here in time, obviously. Wait a second. And uh, that's it. Thanks, everybody.
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. Uh, I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, and that was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to... Uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music, because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time. <laughs>